We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big science from the small island from Hobart, Tasmania. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered, Lutruwita and the Palawa people of Tasmania. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present, to all First Nations people, either where we're recording or where you're listening from. This episode is going to talk about wildlife and electrical engineering and potentially impacts of some power lines on uh, wildlife species. So this is just a content warning for that. It may be something that is a little bit emotional or harrowing. So today we are talking about the E-Yin STEM. We're talking about engineering. So that means I'm joined by our expert co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon. Hey, Sarah, what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, So today we've got two guest speakers from TAS Networks who are going to talk with us about the impact of overhead power lines on threatened bird species in Tasmania. That sounds fascinating. Since you put forward this idea, I've had lots of different thoughts because I thought birds weren't impacted by this. I'm really excited to learn more and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn heaps from this episode too. So would you like to introduce our expert guests? Yes. So today we've got Mandy Fish joining us, who's a continuous improvement specialist Uh, Mandy's an experienced engineer with the electrical power industry with a passion for continuous learning and sustainability. (laughs) Uh, We've also got Thomas Webster joining us. So Thomas's role is as an environmental and sustainability specialist at TAS Networks and has a passion for conserving Tasmania's unique environmental and cultural heritage values. So welcome. Yeah, welcome both. I'm really excited. That sounds like an awesome um, dual perspective to have on the show. So thanks for setting that up, Sarah, and also for both of you coming in. So Sarah, what what are we getting started with in this first segment? Um, So to start with, Mandy, can you tell us a little bit about uh, electrical power engineering and how you see sustainability in the electrical power profession? Uh, Sure. Big question to start with. Um, So I guess like any engineering stream, it's very um, personal and will be unique to who you'd ask this question um, of, given the amount of opportunities available in the engineering stream. Um, for me, power engineering working at TAS Networks is the sustainable design and management of the transmission, distribution and uh, communications networks that run across Tassie. So we have uh, 22,000 kilometres of, of lines that run across Tassie. Um, in terms of sustainability, I guess for me, it's the little things. So it's in the core of everything we do. So whether it's considering um, the design aspects, like the longevity or a cost of a design, Um, the impact that our network is having on the environment, as we'll go into today, or how the decisions we make impact our team members and customers. Um, I guess those sustainable considerations are across everything that we do. Thanks for that. Thomas, can you tell us what parts of the power system have the greatest impact on wildlife and why this is the case? Yep. So looking at our um, historic incidents involving um, listed threatened bird species, we know that um, the most of the risk is posed by our distribution network. So that's the I suppose, smaller wood poles and conductors. So 96% of all our um, recorded threatened bird incidents over the last probably six or so years um, involve the distribution network. And then a much smaller proportion, only around 4% of our incidents um, involve the larger steel poles and wires um, on on our transmission network. So... Yeah, so it's really really that our efforts in terms of mitigating risk to these bird species are focused on the distribution network. So can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of impact the lines have on the birds? 
Yeah, sure. So, um, so Tas Networks has a threatened bird strategy, which was implemented in 20, um, about 2015, 2016. So most of what our um, threatened bird strategy is on listed threatened birds. So when we're talking about the, the species most impacted, we're talking about um, large, large birds of prey. So predominantly wedge-tailed eagles, white-bellied sea eagles and grey goshawks. Of our known incidents over the last five or six years, probably about 80% of those are wedge-tailed eagles probably around 10% of white-bellied sea eagles and probably around 5% of grey goshawks. Um, so I suppose that's what we're learning about in terms of those kind of species that are most impacted. So what, what we're also learning is it's predominantly the juvenile birds that are most impacted by, by our um, poles and wires. It's probably more an unfamiliarity of those birds once they sort of move out of their um, parents' territory into um, new areas. They're sort of less familiar with the risks in those areas and that's when they tend to be impacted by our poles and wires. So when we say impacted, we're talking about either collision with um, overhead conductors or when they're perching on a pole top being electrocuted, what we call like a phase-to-earth electrocution. So that's the two modes of being impacted. So that's really fascinating. So when I was thinking about this episode, I, w- I thought, maybe naively, that birds aren't impacted by power lines because... I thought you had to be touching like the ground or a grounding source. So this is more so that they're colliding or touching a part that is actually dangerous. Yes. Yeah, so in terms of the way species are impacted, so those three species that I mentioned, the white-bellied sea eagles, wedge-tailed eagles and grey goshawks are impacted differently. So wedge-tailed eagles predominantly colliding um, mid-span. So that's sort of flying directly into conductors. Whereas white-bellied sea eagles and grey goshawks, it's more when they're perching on pole tops, so that's more of a phase-to-earth electrocution. Um, when the wedge-tailed eagles collide with overhead lines, they can be electrocuted, so they're touching two phases simultaneously, um, or they can collide with one conductor, and that can cause injuries. You know, birds are really prone to collision. They've got you know, really quite fragile bones. So any, any injury, unfortunately, tends to mean that even if they are injured, quite often they do have to be euthanised. So it is, it is quite sad and it's quite a significant impact. We, we probably have an average of 20 incidents um, per year over the last five to six years. So it's, it's, a, it's a significant um, environmental risk and it's also a significant um, reputational risk for, for TAS networks and we take it pretty seriously. Yeah, so that would be like 20 incidents across the year across those three species but those three species are endangered so there's different amounts of them left isn't there yeah so there's different listing statuses for um for those species so all three are listed under tasmanian um, threatened species protection act um but all the wedgetail eagle is probably the species of most concern because i suppose firstly that's the species that's being most impacted but also it is listed under federal legislation as well so that is the species probably of most concern for us and it's probably informed most of our approach in terms of how we're mitigating risk posed by our assets. So Mandy, could you tell us then if there are any impacts that wildlife have on the power system? Uh, so there certainly are. Um, so as Tom has mentioned, the primary risk is obviously our impact to the environment. Um, but when, uh, say, a wedgie collides with our conductors, as we mentioned mid-span, um, they do have a tendency to create that phase-to-phase fault, which creates power outages for our customers. Collisions can also cause damage to our conductors, uh, fires, so um, colliding with our lines, arcs and sparks, um, especially in drier summer months, we can have a large bushfire impact or a large bushfire risk, I should say. Financial impacts, so as Thomas went through, 
There's, there's strong legislation in terms of protecting our endangered species in Tassie um, and there's significant financial penalties that we, we face um, if we aren't seen to be doing something about it and we're not taking this seriously. Um, we also have reliability targets which impact our, our financial financial situation to manage the network. And finally, the big one, I guess, is our reputational impact. So, you know, if we lose the respect and trust of our customers or the community or even our own team members, um, you know, the wedgie is quite an iconic species in Tassie. Um, It makes it very difficult for us to make the decisions we need to do to actually effectively manage the network. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I think it's great that sustainability is obviously so high on the agenda of um, a local major power provider because in Tasmania, it would be quite easy to just be like, oh, well, where else are they going to get their power? Um, so it's great that that's not the case, that there's really concerted efforts happening here and that it's also not like there's a multitude of reasons. You're not just like, oh, like we don't want to do this because it would look bad. Like it's really well thought out. So I think that's awesome. Stay with us for more where we're going to be talking in a little bit more detail about the types of risk mitigation approaches that are taken so that we can essentially ensure wildlife aren't being damaged by these power lines. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we've been talking about the relationship between wildlife and power lines. Uh, So now we're going to talk a little bit more about approaches for mitigating the risks and sort of how those risks are defined. So Thomas, if you'd like to start by telling us about how you define the risks and develop strategies to reduce those risks. Yeah, so absolutely. So so what we've been doing at TAS Network has been building up an Eagle Risk Strike model. So the model essentially is trying to understand what the key risk factors are for birds being impacted with our, with our infrastructure. So the way we've been doing that is firstly looking at our historic incidents, looking at the data that we're collecting as part of those incidents, and then we're also validating that data um, with expert opinion to make sure that we're essentially on, on the right track and that model that we're building up um, is, is reasonably accurate. There are some... I suppose, gaps in the data, which, which we're continuously trying to understand. But that's, that's how we sort of build up this model. So what, what we've learned is the areas that are most at risk are sort of open, um, flat areas of the network, um, areas that are probably within 500 metres of a, of a large water body, and it tends to be areas away from, from nesting habitat, so more than, more than two kilometres. So they're sort of open, flat farmland, what you'd see driving through the Midlands. So the, the upper and lower Midlands are really, really high incident areas. Um, the Derwent Valley and the northeast areas sort of up around Gladstone as well. So um, we, we currently have a $4 million um, proactive mitigation program that we're spending over five years and, and we're really focusing on rolling out um, pro- predominantly what we call bird flappers or bird diverters onto our overhead conductors on the distribution network. And essentially those diverters are aimed at making lines more visible so birds can avoid collision. So in particular, wedge-tailed eagles, but also other bird species as well. Do you notice that uh, you said it earlier, it was mostly adolescents, so juvenile kind of birds that are just, you know, flocking the nest, being out there, independent birds. Um, do you notice there's a specific time of year that incidents happen? Because I would imagine there's a bit of a rhythm to when birds are born. Yeah, yeah, very much. There's a real significant spike that we see um, in our incident data. So generally the winter months are our highest risk. Now, we can sort of speculate as to why that is. We don't really know why, but um, the main, I suppose, ongoing hypothesis is that shorter daylight hours means you know more pressure for, I suppose, to find prey and to scavenge. And also, I suppose, 
the way the angle of the light at that time of the year as well might also obscure the power lines as well, so making them less visible and therefore increasing the risk of collision as well. But it's not really well understood why that's the case. That's really interesting. And then also, so you said there's this bird diverter thing. Um, instantly what came to mind to me was like these like, you know, the, the Audi-looking symbol on glasses. And I was like, I don't really see how that's super <laughs> protective for birds. But then when you were describing it, I was imagining some like big-looking, bird-looking thing on top of the power line. So what do you mean by a bird diverter? So the ones we're currently... we. It's probably the ones that are mo- people are most familiar with what we call an afterglow diverter. So it's just a small round device, maybe 10 to 15 centimetres across, which just hangs off our power lines. They're not, they're not particularly big. They do have some reflective tape on either side to help reflect the light and make them more visible. The, um, the current um, unit that we're using is called a firefly diverter. They're really quite visible. If you drive up behind Oatlands and you're along the York Plains Lamont Road, there's a big long stretch of them out there and they, they you know, they spin in the wind, they reflect the light and they really make our lines really quite visible. Yeah, so if you if you're interested in seeing what they're looking like, that's a really good example to go and go and look look at and and see what we've done in the way of rolling that mitigation out. That's a pretty impressive line too because I guess it goes through um, the stages of bird flight diverters and um, what we've gone through and we've tried. So what kind of data do you have to get to determine if these mitigation strategies are actually effective? We do put a fair bit of effort in terms of our testing and measurement. Um, I guess there's two pieces to that. The first piece of the puzzle is really understanding the problem. So we spent significant efforts in terms of building our awareness and knowledge, um, as Thomas mentioned, about you know these uh, the wedge-tailed eagle hunting and flight patterns and their nesting routines and, I guess, building that eagle strike risk model. So um, I guess we have highlighted where our high-risk areas are in the state. Um, and then, you know, following the mitigation, it's, it's trending incidents, building awareness within the community. It's, it's a long process. You can't make early results and go, yes, we've saved the world. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's definitely heading in the right direction. Um, and I guess the, the longer we do this, the more, the more we find, the more continuous, smaller improvements we make. Um, and yeah, the more the more community gets involved and the more we know. So to ask a kind of facetious question, if you're using a reflective, a light reflecting device, um, particularly in those, that period where you're saying, you know, there's low daylight hours, I often find that the sun sitting low is really quite a bad driving hazard. So do you, have you noticed like any human related problems with the reflecting lights going, ah, I can't see? <laughs> Um, so we have had um, a couple of our customers sort of raise issues with the visual impact of the diverters. So we have updated our scoping guidelines to ensure that we're not actually installing those diverters on crossovers, so potentially creating um, a distraction for drivers. You know, having spoken to a couple of the customers, I think there's there's a bit of an effect where it's a new object in their environment, um, particularly that does something that reflect light. It's fairly unusual. And I think once people understand why they're there and what, why we're seeking to put these out in our power lines. It's generally pretty strong for support for what, what we're trying to do and trying to limit our, our impact on these, on these species. Andy, can you tell us a bit about what engineering principles and practices go into this work? Um, so there's certainly quite a few, I guess both the technical and not so technical principles. Um, we've talked about a few already in terms of, um, I guess, due diligence and accountability. So understanding what are the what's the regulatory environment that we, we fall within, um, looking at our electricity and our environmental regulations um, was key in terms of seeing what is and what isn't possible and what our strategy should be aiming for. Research and benchmarking, so understanding that we're not alone. Uh, there's a significant number of power utilities across the world who are all facing 
um, I guess, issues with wildlife, both impacting the wildlife and on their networks. So understand we're not alone. Sharing learnings um, is key to ensure that we're moving forward and not, uh, I guess, recreating the wheel and uh, having the same each of us having the same issues and the same learning, I guess, pros and cons as you go through that process. Uh, problem solving and creativity is a big one. Um, so I guess as, engineer, as engineers, we have probably a unique ability to be able to put things together in ways that maybe some others can't. You know, once we've, got, once we've done the research and we know what options are available, how do we put those options together to actually make it Make a targeted approach that works for us because I guess every every single place of the world or every utility is slightly different and different um, strategies are going to work better for, for different people. Risk and financial analysis is a big one. So nothing goes up without understanding the risks. What is your problem? Falling in love with that problem um, and then you know balancing the best way to mitigate those risks whilst balancing your cost to customers. So I guess as Thomas mentioned, we have a what a $4 million project over uh, five years. So for that, we need to prioritise across our entire program of work. So managing the network, this is one piece of it. So how do we how do we balance those costs and make sure that the customers are paying for the things that they want to pay for? Uh, and finally, we touched on as well, test and measure. So, you know, we need to throw something out there. We need to, we need to see how it acts. There was some pressure on us to act. So once we built that knowledge and awareness, we understood how big this problem was, how much of an impact we were having on the environment. So all of a sudden, uh, the pressure to act quickly um, grows exponentially. The strategy that Thomas mentioned, our mitigation plan has, uh, you know, multiple short-term and longer-term aspects in in that. In terms of let's get something on the ground, let's let's slow these incident numbers down, and then what can we do for an ongoing piece? What's what's that sustainability in our designs moving forward to to really make sure that we we're, we're seeing a long-term solution? That whole kind of like engineering ethos of sharing best practice and really um, updating trends or approaches as you go like do you think that this has identified potential design considerations for future power lines or um you know for future development as well a hundred percent so I guess what um Thomas was talking about in terms of our diverters that was looking at um, our existing network so we have 22,000 k's of of power lines out there that we're not going to replace in the next 50 years so you know what what can we do in that approach and you know if there's an incident how do we react to that so the mitigation strategy has three parts Um, the first is uh, totally reactive if we have an incident on our lines we're out there within seven days and we're mitigating a small a small section of our network to really reduce the likelihood of a second incident because I guess when we started measuring it we found that 40 percent of our incidents happened in um, very similar locations to a previous one we then have kind of a medium-term approach where we use our eagle strike risk model uh, to strategically uh, mitigate large sections of our lines so kilometers along York's Plain Road in the in the Midlands is a good example and one that we're very close to implementing. Um, so this is obviously the longer piece is is that design piece of our network. So we're looking at moving from steel cross arms to fiberglass cross arms. Um, so they're the things that support our conductors. Something as simple as that reduces the conductivity of the pole top. Um, there's also other benefits in terms of their lighter weight for our crews that are actually installing them. Oh, Sarah, I think we spoke about those fiberglass approaches that they reduced bushfire risk when we had Sam Vahidi and Jason King on before in our bushfire series. We'll have to share that episode too. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's there's so many benefits with these. So we're very close to implementing them. We've rolled them out on our LV network, our low voltage network. Um, we're now looking at more extensive ones on our HV, high voltage. Um, and then also we're moving towards delta spacing. So typically if you drive along anywhere in Tassie, you'll see flat spacing of three conductors. Um, we're moving to a more triangular shape, so a delta shape, um, as that increases the spacing of our conductors and reduces that phase-to-phase fault. So it's less risk of a 
of a for a wedgie, which is a large bird with a two metre wingspan, less chance of them actually bridging across the two conductors and, and facing electrocution. That's fascinating. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us for just a moment when you'll hear about what you can do or your community to support risk mitigation for threatened species for power lines. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, and we've been talking about threatened bird species and power lines. It's something I had never really thought about before, but I've learned heaps in the episode, so I hope you're enjoying it. Sarah, what are we getting into in this final section? Uh, So in this final part, we're going to look at some future directions and steps that our listeners can take. Thomas, could you tell us um, what do you see as the next steps in implementing effective strategies and technologies to mitigate the risk of power infrastructure on threatened bird species? Look, I think think for us, it's really about, um, I suppose, two things. It's firstly, it's about just collecting better data. Um, and the second one is, I suppose, is to ensure that our um, mitigation strategies are being effective. Um, I suppose there's kind of two, two key, um, I suppose, you call them known unknowns. So this is around... I suppose, firstly, how, uh, how are the populations of wedge-tailed eagles in Tasmania actually changing? As Mandy said, our, our incidents have actually been declining over the last three years, which is really encouraging for what we're doing. But if the population levels of wedge-tailed eagles is also declining, then really it's not, it's not particularly meaningful. The other challenge that we really have is, as Mandy said, we have 22,000 kilometres of overhead distribution line. So that's a lot of line in a lot of really remote places. So we suspect there's a number of incidents that go unreported each year. We really don't know what the extent of that underreporting is. So I guess if we're talking about what, what steps can people take, I guess the first one is they can take, if they suspect that a bird has interacted with our power lines, to report that through to us as soon as they can. The second one is um, there's a program which we're really big supporters of, which is Where We're Wedgie, which is a citizen science project dedicated to understanding how population levels of wedge-tailed eagles are changing over time, along with some other Tasmanian bird species as well. So that's something that anybody can get involved with. Um, You do it over two weekends in May, get out and enjoy nature, but at the same time, help to understand what's what's happening more broadly with the population of of bird species in Tasmania because it's a really critical piece for understanding whether what we're doing is actually making a difference. I love where we're wedgie as an example of citizen science. It's just like iconically Tasmanian. I've always wondered, do you know why they specifically choose May as those weekends? So my, my understanding, that probably one of the biggest ones is it's outside um, the nesting season. So nesting season for um, most birds of prey is from around June to February each year. So that's when you're going to see most birds out there in the environment. It means the juveniles have fledged the nest and um, the adults are probably more likely to be transient because they won't actually be sitting on a nest. So I believe that's that's why it's the most um, appropriate time of year to actually do those surveys. Awesome. So Mandy, can you tell us a little bit about some emerging technologies that you're aware of that we may see in this space in the future? Uh, certainly. So I guess uh, at Tasnetworks we don't own or operate any wind farms, so it's a little bit out of uh, our control. Um, but one of the things that I saw that was very impressive is uh, some of the technology at one of the new wind farms that was installed in Tassie near Watermana. So they have a an eagle tracking system. Um, it basically spans the sky 360 degrees around the wind farm, um, looks for movement. Once it's 
found that movement. It locks on and takes a significant number of images at a very quick time frame to identify what that movement came from. And if it's a threatened raptor, um, it'll then follow the path of that raptor. Um, and if it comes anywhere near um, a turbine, that turbine immediately switches off until the, the raptor is passed in another safe position. So that was incredibly exciting. So I wanted just to finish up. Um, I think this episode is a fi- on this topic is a fantastic example of where science involves multiple perspectives to generate a solution um, and by science I'm, I'm including engineering that's so STEM is probably more inclusive but I wonder if you could just speak a little bit either Thomas or Mandy about like how integral that multidisciplinary perspective and having all of those viewpoints from across different areas of science has been to this project. It's been huge. So I guess one of the big things in Tasnetworks is we have a threatened bird working group um, and that spans the entire business. So, you know, we've got um, team members from field operations who are the guys that are out there putting up these poles and wires and, and seeing seeing the ground level and seeing these incidents. Um, engineering, obviously, um, our environmental team, a communications team, so that huge community engagement piece. Um, you know, if you get the community involved, all of a sudden you have hundreds of thousands more more eyes in the sky um, and helping you make decisions. So definitely the cross-collaboration has been significant in terms of pulling together this overarching strategy. Um, and it's not yeah, it's not just engineering. Uh, Mitigation is one part of it, but that whole building awareness piece um, and I guess supporting our conserva- conservation efforts as well has been huge. We also have um, an external... Um, Threatened Bird Forum, which we run every six months as well. So this brings together a a range of our key external stakeholders. So um, it's a real opportunity to um, collaborate on on our Threatened Bird strategy, but also understand what's happening more broadly. And and this brings together a range of different um, eminent um, raptor experts from across the state. And it's a real way for us to supposed to test test our approach, ensure that we've got buy-in and, and learn more what's happening more more broadly as well. Could I ask what both of you studied? Did you actually think when you were studying all that hardcore maths theory <laughs> that you'd be, you know, working with multidisciplinary groups thinking very hard about birds and bird patterns? <laughs> uh, definitely something I did not think I'd be doing uh, in my engineering degree, coming out with a power power degree. Uh, I know more about the wedgie than I ever thought I would. But it's so much fun. Like It just goes to show the diversity in, in any job in engineering space. Um, like, yes, there's the hardcore maths, but there's also this whole community. Um, so I suppose I studied environment sustainability um, through my um, undergraduate and postgraduate studies. So I guess it's not that outside the realms of possibility that I'd be working in something like this, but to actually be working in something where... Oh, yeah, while it's a really significant um, environmental and reputational issue for the business, to be able to feel like that we're part of something where we are making a really tangible difference and you know doing the right thing and we have support from the experts and the community for what we're doing, it's just it's a really great thing to be a part of. Awesome. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science, bringing you big STEM content from the small island. And this one was really tazzy focused. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy the show, please do like and subscribe or review us wherever you get your podcast so that we can spread the good word of science to more people. My name's Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank Dr. Sarah Lydon as my co-host for this episode and our expert guests, Mandy Fish and Thomas Webster. If you've got any more questions for them, please get in touch with us via our social media channels and also keep an eye out for Where We're Wedgie and get involved next year. Thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. 
You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.